So I'm going to get in a lot of trouble from my small modular reactor friends when I say this, but we have had the technology to combat global warming since the 50s. If you wanted to decarbonize the baseload electricity requirements of the entire globe, you could do it with the reactors we had in the 60s and 70s. You just need the political will and the financial will to bite the bullet and essentially pay the carbon tax. And I think nuclear is, is a really, really reasonable and responsible way to achieve that. another episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm uh, joined today with Sean McGee uh, in Denver, Colorado. Sean's here on the YPE board in Denver. He's a ex-nuclear engineer now working for a government contractor that's helping build one of the space shuttles. Super smart guy. How's, how's your afternoon going, Sean? It's going pretty good. How are you, Mark? Awesome. So Sean's, Sean's going to be co-hosting with me today. And because he found our, our guest for today, which is Dennis Elliott. And we're super excited to, to chat with Dennis about his work and his career and everything that he's done so far. Um, and I don't want to butcher uh, anything for you, Dennis. So I'm just going to go ahead and let you give an intro for yourself. Sure thing. Thanks. Uh, good, uh, good to speak with you, Sean and Mark. And uh, yeah, really happy to be here. So uh, a little bit of my background. Um, I guess I'll start from the end. Uh, I am... Uh, CNL's uh, commercial lead for the Advanced Reactors Directorate. Uh, without getting into it too much, essentially what that means is uh, I'm the point of contact for um, any members of industry or small modular reactor or advanced reactor vendors that are interested in working with Canadian nuclear laboratories. Uh, so naturally, as Canada's national lab, we have a whole bunch of uh, special capabilities and facilities and, um, and uh, very, very intelligent experts in, in a variety of fields. Uh, and we uh, have a mandate from the government of Canada to support the deployment and development of small modular reactor technology throughout the country. So we do a whole bunch of work with uh, all sorts of people in the Canadian nuclear industry as well as uh, around the world. Uh, and it's uh, a, a big part of my job to sort of facilitate the contractual arrangements between uh, between those organizations and make sure that they can have access to uh, to our labs. Uh, in addition to that, my role involves leading CNL's commercial strategy related to uh, small modular reactor development and deployment. Uh, and I also administer something called the Canadian Nuclear Research Initiative, which is a cost sharing program uh, that CNL funds in order to enable small modular reactor vendors to have easier access to CNL's capabilities and facilities. Uh, it's somewhat similar uh, if your audience is familiar with the GAIN initiative uh, in the United States. A similar concept and structure. Uh, in terms Gain is uh, right. What I forget what the G is, but for advancement and innovation in nuclear. Yeah, gateway for advancement and innovation in nuclear. I think it is. Right. In terms of my educational background, it's a little. It's actually very unique. I think for the nuclear industry, I have my undergraduate from Trent University and my master's uh, from the University of Waterloo. But uh, I'm not from technical fields. I actually have an arts background. So I studied political science and international development studies. Uh, and then moved into political economics uh, in my master's degree. And um, my my thesis was actually on uh, factors contributing to the success or failure of state-owned enterprises. And then I went off and worked at a quasi-state-owned enterprise. So <laughs> that's uh, that's almost the only way in which my formal education is directly linked to my, to my current role. 
So it, when when did you go to school? I, how how long ago were you in school? You're a relatively young guest compared to some that we have, have on the podcast. So yeah, so thank you. I uh, I graduated in 2014. Um, that was when I finished my master's. I took took a year in between. But uh, essentially, after graduating, I worked at a very small uh, local business um, for a year, and then uh, landed my first job at CNL, and then sort of moved from there. So I've been with CNL for just over five years now. Cool. So what? Why interest in state-owned enterprises or uh, some some variation of that? What What was your interest or draw there? So to be to be completely honest, um, my I am not a model academic per se. I didn't really have any one topic I was super interested in. I just sort of took a variety of classes that that interested me and and happened to sort of fall into political economics and. Um, Really, I was just interested in Latin America in general as uh, a sort of case study in international development studies and sort of the path that they've taken and also all of the sort of interesting things that happened uh, with sort of the pink wave in the in the 90s. Um, <laughs> but that's not what this webinar is about. Anyways, uh, really, the reason I went into into nuclear is uh, far closer to home. I came from a literal nuclear family. Both of my parents were researchers at Atomic Energy of Canada, which is, you know, the the name for this place uh, from before, um, back when it was just a fed, it was a federal uh, federally run site. Um, so they were both researchers. They retired long before I I joined, but uh, I've always been really really fascinated by you know any scientific topic. But uh, I'm not really cut out to be a scientist. I um I really don't have uh, again that uh, that passion for one specific topic, which I feel like seems to be kind of necessary to be a successful scientist these days. You have to be like the most knowledgeable person ever about one little thing. And I don't have the attention span for that. I mean, you're stereotypical millennial. I need to be doing a whole bunch of different things. So I love science and I took science courses all the way through high school and always wanted a career that was tangential to it. But uh, I, I knew I wasn't going to be a scientist. So when a job came up in the business development department at uh, Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, it seemed like an amazing opportunity. Dude, that's awesome. And from your description of your job, it sounds like a dream job. Right. I mean, what what exciting and fun work to be doing that now. And yeah, and scientists need folks like you, right? Like a business development and folks that can write and can communicate very, very effectively with lots of people. So I'm sure you're a big asset to them. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, I like to think so. <laughs> but but yeah, certainly, I mean, it's the sort of thing where um, it, there's a lot of very brilliant people who have a hard time um, sharing that and a hard time communicating that, especially with other people that aren't experts in their field and so there's there's certainly an art to uh taking highly technical information sort of refining it down to the essential messages cool so what what kind of roles have you had at a uh, canadian nuclear labs uh so i actually started off uh as a marketing specialist so that was really uh, similar to what we were just talking about that was really all about taking you know these kind of obscure and abstract capabilities that we have and then figuring out a way to communicate them uh, to to our customer base in a way that in, in their language, right? Um, so CNL, uh, and we'll probably get into this a bit more later, is different from typical national labs. Uh, I think because in the United States, you guys uh, or the national labs don't really have a mandate to pursue commercial work. Um, 
In fact, I think they're sort of disincentivized from competing with private industry. Um, CNL's mandate from the Canadian government is a little bit different. We're actually encouraged to compete with uh, private industry uh, and sort of subsidize the operational expenses of the national lab through commercial work. And so um, for that reason, and because of our historical involvement in the development of the CANDU reactor technology, we have um, we have a much stronger than what you'd expect um, set of capabilities around supporting the existing fleet. So we actually do a lot of um, work like materials analysis, um, fuel post radiation examination, and other sort of services that you would normally expect from an engineering firm um, for the CANDU fleet. And we do sort of verification testing to make sure that uh, the components are still performing as expected sort of 30, 40 years into operational lifespan. Um, and, you know, verifying for our customers to the CNSC that they're still safe to operate and things like that. So it's a it's a pretty unique um, organization for that reason. So how is the, the nuclear power industry currently viewed in Canada? So I think um, it's a much it's nuclear is probably in a better place right now than it has been for for a number of decades, especially in Canada. There's uh, a lot of really exciting stuff going on right now. The the largest one is, uh, well, I'll, I'll start with the existing fleet and then get into the SMR side of things. Uh, so the biggest project going on right now um, is the refurbishment of 10 CANDU plants uh, in Ontario. This is a approximately $25 billion project uh, that's been going on since about 2016 and it's expected to take uh, about a decade, and, and it's kind of happening in a rolling basis, the refurbishing these 10 units. Um, and a, a can-do plant is your guys' acronym for your predominant, or are there any types of reactors other than can-do reactors in Canada? No, they're all they're all can-do. So they're all, so they're all, all can-do, versus we've got light water reactors, or it's a different design of nuclear reactor in the, in the States. Uh, that's right. You guys have your own unique design. That's right. So it's a pressurized heavy water reactor. So we have a different moderator um, and that allows us uh, to operate with lower levels of fuel enrichment. So our fuel is a lot cheaper, uh, but the initial construction costs are a fair bit higher because the moderator itself is significantly more expensive. Um, so there's pluses and minuses. Another unique feature of it is uh, we don't have a reactor pressure vessel. Well, we do, but we have like hundreds of them. They're, they're pressure tubes that run through the core. So it's a very, very interesting design. And um, the the primary advantage of, of having this kind of a lot more complicated thing of hundreds of pressure tubes running through your core is that uh, you can actually do online refueling. So uh, you don't need an outage to refuel. We, uh, they actually are almost continuously refueling with an automated refueling system. So that's a, that's a pretty nifty thing. So I think, yeah, in Canada, um, nuclear is in a, in a better place than it has been for decades. Um, the, the largest project going on right now is a uh, $25 billion refurbishment project for our existing uh, CANDU reactor fleet. And um, it's been taking place uh, since uh, about 2016, and I think it's expected to take about 10 years. Uh, don't hold me to that. But um, this is happening in a rolling fashion, and uh, I know they've successfully completed the first of these refurbishments as of 2020. So in the middle of a pandemic, you know, they, they managed to finish this. So the project's been going, I think, extremely well. I don't know a ton about the details, but uh, the fact that such a large and complicated 
um, first round of refurbishments was completed, you know, in under four years is, I think, extremely impressive. And it also means that we've got this supply chain in Canada that is now extremely expert in refurbishment activities. So it's sort of been fostering this supply chain that performs this refurbishment activity at one plant. And once that's complete, they move on to the next one. And you've got this rolling set of activities uh, that are ongoing. And that and once that's complete, uh, it's going to set up Canada or Ontario anyways, uh, there are nuclear industry to continue for another 30 or 40 years, um, at least those main on-grid power reactors. And uh, just a just a sort of fun fact, you know, nuclear pr- provides 60% of Ontario's power. So it's, it's huge here um, in our province. And we are a completely carbon-free electricity grid. We have 60% nuclear. We have about 30% um, hydro and then 10% renewables. So... Uh, in my mind, anyways, that's the perfect energy mix. <laughs> people, people in oil and gas might uh, might disagree. You guys are the, the poster poster child, right? You, who needs CCUS when you've got sixty uh, percent nuclear and a bunch of hydro? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's really cool. So, so CNL Canadian Nuclear Labs, and you guys are you guys are in Chalk River, which is a municipality in the area, right? And then the is that true? It's uh, complicated as all these things are. Chalk River is the location. Um, it's also, you know, the name of the specific laboratory complex. Canadian Nuclear Laboratories operates a number of complexes on right. behalf of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, which is our, our, the actual government body that owns the land and all of the equipment and everything. They, they hold the assets. It's a GOCO model. So we're the contractor that operates their sites on behalf of them. And right. yes, and Chalk Go-Co. River is also a... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, GoCo is government company partnership or government acting is government owned contractor operated. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Government owned contractor. Okay. So, what kind of research are you guys doing at CNL in Chalk River? So this is uh, this is a, another interesting one, um, and I'll I'll try to start by sort of juxtaposing CNL versus the U.S. National Labs again, um, just for a point yeah. of reference. Which I think is really helpful, even for the U.S. audience, because I uh, I'll be honest, I bet a lot of Americans don't actually understand how big or awesome the National Labs are, and and like the the benefit to society that they have. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> hopefully this will be a little bit of an education for Americans too. So. Sure thing. And I'm, I mean, I'm not even going to try to educate them on the U.S. National Lab system oh, too yeah, much, yeah. but I will, I will at least, yeah. I will at least say that um, uh, you guys, much like with everything, do it 10 times bigger than us. So <laughs> you've got a lot more labs and, uh, you know, a lot more money that you're working with and all sorts of really cool stuff going on that makes me jealous sometimes. But um, in general, the U.S. system, you guys have, I think, 17 labs. Uh, don't hold me to that. Uh, but it's something like that number spread out across the country. And a number of them do nuclear activities, right? Um, there's uh, nuclear work going going on in a number of places, and a number of different sites have reactors and, and all sorts of things like that. In Canada, it's all in one place, and that's us. So pretty much all of the nuclear expertise in Canada outside of private industry is located at CNL, and all of the federally funded research related to nuclear science and technology happens here. Uh, so what that means is we have a very, very broad mandate here. And we do basically cradle to grave. So at a high level, our three missions are uh, to restore and protect the environment, um, 
to advance clean energy technologies for the future and to improve the health of Canadians. Now, those are, you know, three pretty darn big topics. Um, so I'll try and add a little bit more uh, detail to what that really means in our context. Um, so the uh, in terms of restoring and protecting the environment, uh, Chalk River has operated since the 1940s. Uh, we were actually established as part of the uh, Manhattan Project during World War II. And as you could probably expect from an organization that performed nuclear science and technology at the cutting edge <laughs> uh, at the turn of the half century, we uh, we did a lot of activities in an environment that didn't necessarily have the in robust environmental controls that you would have in place today. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. an elegant way to put it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's very like we were we were pretty cowboy about it back then. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, the Canadian government has taken responsibility for this and, and very rightly has essentially uh, mandated CNL to clean up this legacy activity, right? Uh, so there's a number of operations throughout the, co the country um, associated with cleaning up after some of those uh, those activities from the old days. And there's also a large cleanup operation uh, as part of the revitalization of our laboratory complex. So we had a lot of buildings that were built in the 50s and, and, and 60s that need to be torn down to make way for new new facilities and, and just to clean up the site in general. So there's an enormous uh, amount of work that we do on that side of things and also a little bit of research going on there um, that pertains to, you know, new waste management techniques and, and new waste processing techniques and just things to make uh, make the site in general cleaner and safer. Uh, and also technology that can then be sort of used by the rest of the industry um, to the benefit of the broader Canadian environment. On the clean energy side, that one's a little bit more direct. Uh, we're the birthplace of the CANDU reactor technology. Uh, so it was actually developed by Atomic Energy of Canada Limited back when that was what we were called. Um, and as a result of that, uh, we have uh, a pretty strong focus on supporting the existing CANDU fleet and on continuing to innovate and try and find better ways to, to operate the existing plants. So there's a whole bunch of research that goes on in those areas. And it's, you know, it's interesting because it's very applied research. It's not necessarily the sort of thing you'd think of when you think of a national lab. Uh, it's, it's very, it's on the engineering side and it's like, you know, how can we actually make these plants run more efficiently or, you know, what are some ways we can improve the chemistry controls for plants under these conditions and these sorts of things stuff that's a uh, you know a lot more directly applicable rather than you know something that will eventually become uh, an industry technology 50 years down the road but of course we do that sort of work as well um developing hydrogen production techniques and um, and uh, you know cyber security uh cyber security packages and things like that to uh, to to possibly counteract, you know, for future problems or support remote operations of, of power plants and things like that. It really is a, a pretty extensive portfolio. And then on the health side, um, we historically were a major producer of medical isotopes for the world. Uh, so the National Research Universal Reactor operated for 60 years and produced um, medical isotopes that were used in the treatment or diagnosis of over a billion patients over its operating life. So enormous, enormous impact and contribution to, to um, nuclear medicine. And 
we the organization has decided to sort of build on that expertise uh, after the shutdown of the National Research Universal Reactor um, by exploring other isotope production techniques and in particular focusing on the production of actinium-225, which is an alpha-emitting radioisotope. Uh, and I'm just going to get into this and you can use it if you want to, <laughs> but it, I think it's really cool. So I want to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, let's, let's talk about it. Sounds great. <laughs> so actinium-225 uh, is an alpha-emitting isotope. And the reason why that's so exciting is um, alpha radiation is very interesting. Uh, it's extremely high energy. So it's a, it's a radiation of a large particle, um, which means it's extremely destructive, but it's also extremely easy to shield against. You can literally block alpha radiation with a piece of paper. Um, alternatively, at the other end of the spectrum, gamma radiation um, is, is uh, electron radiation. And so it's very penetrating, but it's lower energy. Um, traditional cancer treatment uh, it uses gamma radiation. Uh, so you have you know, your cancerous cells. You bombard it with gamma radiation, you kill the cancerous cells, and that's you know theoretically how it works and how it gets rid of the cancer. Unfortunately, because gamma radiation is so penetrating, you're also damaging a lot of healthy cells. And that's why, you know, if you've seen anybody who's going through chemo, there, you know, there's all sorts of unwanted side effects like losing your hair and, and just feeling horrible and all these other sorts of things. And that's essentially, you know, radiation damage to your body, right? The alpha emitters could hypothetically avoid that. So if you could figure out how to get an alpha emitting radioisotope directly to a tumor, then you're releasing those high energy particles and they barely go anywhere. So they basically just damage the tumor cells and they don't really damage the healthy, healthy cells surrounding them because you're just bombarding the tumor with high energy, but the tumor blocks it all too. Um, and so this is, you know, potentially a groundbreaking, game-changing uh, treatment for certain types of cancers. The unfortunate part is that actinium-225 is also the rarest drug in the world. <laughs> People like to call it that. <laughs> I, can share, I can share a link to a video that describes it really well. But it's it's not uh, something that occurs naturally, right? You know, you, you have to uh, you have to really work at it to get it. So we're exploring different production methods for actinium-225 because we've historically always been um, an organization that has helped with the supply of radioisotopes, and we are now applying this expertise to this new, very exciting potential uh, cancer treatment. That's that's incredible. I love that. A little bit, uh, yeah, a little bit of a side note um, from our our plan talk topic, but super important, really helpful for the world. Uh, I can almost guarantee that I will probably be a victim of cancer because of how I'm living my life now. But uh, so I'm I'm, ca I'm counting on you guys to get it figured out by the time that time comes. So. <laughs> uh, no, no pressure, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's really good. Well, let's let's pivot a little bit, and uh, you know, we'd scripted this interview to try and focus a little bit on SMRs, um, so small modular reactors, as they're um, affectionately called by the industry. For those folks that don't know or aren't privy to, to nuclear, right? Most of the, when people say nuclear and they think about energy, it's it's often large scale nuclear reactors, meaning like a gigawatt power sized power plant. Um, but small modular reactors are more of the like, you know, 50 to 300 megawatt sized power plants. And you guys are, are researching some. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to for the sake of clarity, um, CNL is not developing a specific reactor technology. 
uh, our role is to support the deployment of SMR technologies and the development of SMR technologies in Canada and around the world. So what we are doing is we're developing a whole bunch of capabilities and expertise that will allow us to provide sort of expert input to SMR vendors as they advance their designs. So that's, you know, that's essentially what my job is to get that kind of work into the labs. Um, but also, you know, we do a bunch of federally funded work to develop those baseline capabilities that will be required to support the development of those fleets. Um, and it's a really it's a really fascinating thing, right, because at this point, the SMR market is still, you know, what I would say, fairly crowded. There are a lot of different technologies still out there uh, and there are a lot of folks still competing to, to be the first to deploy. And that means you need a lot of different potential. Uh, capabilities and a lot of different types of expertise uh, to be able to support that. So, you know, we've been we've been investing in in uh, loops to loops to determine sort of the thermophysical properties of molten salts because there are a bunch of molten salt cold reactors looking to deploy in Canada. We've been uh, developing our capabilities in triso fuel analysis and production um, at a laboratory scale. We've been uh, just looking into just higher temperature materials testing because a lot of these advanced reactors work at temperatures, you know, two to three times as high as a traditional reactor would operate at. Um, so, yeah, all sorts of really interesting activities going on to sort of ramp up our capabilities in support of uh, these emerging SMR fleets. Yeah, the, the materials piece is really interesting to me. It's like we don't have metals or other materials now that can literally withstand the temperatures that we anticipate to be be uh, operated at, right? So we do, we've got to literally invent metals to to be able to house this process, which is not impossible, right? With humans, we've done it all the time. Metallurgists are super smart people, so yeah, it's 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 really cool, and and of course, with higher temperatures comes more. Uh, more potential reactivity, right? It's one of those things that accelerates a reaction is a high temperature. And so even though the highest temperature reactors are going to be, you know, uh, using a helium coolant, which is, of course, very benign, if you have any impurities in there, you can run into all sorts of challenges. So it's certainly a, an interesting engineering challenge when you're running at those temperatures. What's CNL's relationship with the uh, nuclear regulator in Canada? seems like there wouldn't be too many subject matter experts on these first-of-a-kind technologies. So when companies go to the regulator to get licensed, uh, will they be leaning on CNL to provide input to the design? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And um, the short answer, I think, is yes. But it, it really is going to be a very interesting situation because, as you rightly point out, there aren't going to be very many subject matter experts in these areas. And certainly part of our mandate is to be a a font of expertise for the regulator to rely upon. You know, they have a lot of very smart people there as well, but sometimes you need to experimentally verify something. So they will come to us for, for that sort of thing or just for expert input on, you know, some submission made by uh, X, Y, or Z. Of course, the really fun part uh, is that I'm also trying to get commercial work with these vendors. <laughs> and so it, we have to be very careful about who's working on on these things and how we um, how we put experts on different projects, right? There has to be very clear distinctions and, and firewalls between these things because obviously it doesn't make much sense for one of our scientists to be essentially 
um, reviewing his own work or her own work um, for on behalf of the CNSC. Like we do, we do an experiment for a vendor. We send it to them. They send it to the CNSC, and then the CNSC sends it back to us to verify. I mean, obviously, that you know, you have to get a different set of people doing that. But absolutely, you know, there's um, we have a we have a long history of working uh, very well and very closely with the CNSC, and and um, you know, we've managed that you know quite successfully in the past. So. So you gave three examples of uh, potential technology applications that you guys are working on in the lab and trying to develop expertise. Um, and then kind of before we were on the record, you had talked about high temperature gas reactors. Can you can you comment at all on some work that might be done on high temperature gas reactors? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so there's a few uh, public things I'm allowed to talk about. Yes, uh, high temperature <laughs> gas cooled, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So... I mean, the the main one and that I, I, I would get in a lot of trouble if I didn't mention is, of course, the uh, small modular reactor demonstration project that's going on at our site on Chalk River. So UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation and OPG have teamed up to form Global First Power, uh, who are planning to site a high temperature gas cooled reactor at our site. Uh, this is the micromodular reactor is the actual official name of the technology. Uh, so this is a 15 megawatt thermal uh, gas cooled reactor with a triso fuel. And um, as with a, a lot of these um, technologies, we really see our sweet spot being on the fuel side of things. There aren't a lot of places in Canada that have facilities that can handle uh, fuel, can that can produce fuel or that can analyze fuel after it's been irradiated. You know, obviously some of that stuff is screaming hot. So um, we have uh, an ongoing project through the Canadian Nuclear Research Initiative that I alluded to earlier uh, with UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation, who is the technology developer, um, on establishing the capability to produce their fuel compacts in Canada. So they have a patented technology, um, and they're essentially uh, teaching our researchers uh, the ins and outs of that technology, and we're developing our own qualified processes for producing, uh, for producing those compacts in Canada so that eventually we can kind of core that first demonstration reactor. So that's a really cool, exciting project. Uh, and about uh, a year ago now, um, we actually did produce the first ever FCM uh, triso compacts in Canada. Um, and there's a there's a press release to that that I can I can give you a link for if you'd like. But uh, it, it's uh, really it's really exciting stuff. So the 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 demonstration project. Is it just for the fuel, or is is there an actual uh, small reactor? What um, help me help me understand? I guess I, I'm not very familiar with it. Sean, it looked like you were googling a little bit. Uh, you know, we're sitting here on Teams meeting. Were you looking at a picture of it? Yeah, I was just going to say I actually went to uh, Ohio State's nuclear engineering department with uh, a couple of the top engineers at UltraSafe, and it does not surprise me at all that they're uh, spearheading this project. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely definitely some bright people. Yeah, so to answer your question, Mark, um, it is a reactor demonstration. So it's um, that was just one small component of it uh, that CNL happens to be working on. But um, the reactor demonstration project in general is uh, quite interesting. So we have an open invitation uh, to anyone um, to, to start the process of looking into siting a reactor at CNL. At, uh, at one of our sites. And so we have a number of sites that are potentially a good fit for a variety of different reactor technologies. 
Um, and there's a four stage invitation process that's open to the public that I can also provide a link for because we can spend all day talking about it. Um, but the long and short of it is that Global First Power is the furthest along in this process. They're in stage three. Uh, they're actively pursuing their license to uh, to construct this uh, reactor through the CNSC. Um, we have a site selected for them. They're actually going to be stealing half of our parking lot, so I'm sure a lot of the employees will be happy about that. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, you know, we obviously have a lot of infrastructure in place uh, that makes it a little easier for an SMR vendor to site here um, than they would in a greenfield location, right? So we've already got the security infrastructure, we've already got, um, you know, the the fire team, we've got the regulatory know-how, and we've got a whole bunch of very smart people who can help you if uh, things aren't operating as planned. So it's a pretty appealing site for that reason, um, and that invitation process is open to. Uh, indefinitely, right? Anyone can apply at any time and, and start into this process. And, you know, there's not just room for one reactor here. It's a 9,000 acre site. Uh, we could certainly fit a few of them. Um, but yeah, do, the do, they do they have to be Canadian or can some some engineers from Colorado apply? Engineers from Colorado could apply. You guys can send in your napkin <laughs> drawing and... <laughs> there, there is a pretty extensive vetting process. I'm not sure how many stages you'll get through uh, without any funding or backers, but uh, you're, you're welcome to apply. <laughs> good, good to know. Um, so is, is uh, UltraSafe Nuclear's reactor, is it just the reactor component or is it also the power generation balance of plant, the whole micro reactor? Or? So the main purpose of this one is a demonstration of the reactor technology itself. But okay. so the, the actual critical, yeah, we're going critical. We're splitting atoms, right? We're generating heat. Uh, again, for part of our audience is probably ignorant about many things nuclear. Actually, generating heat and the the components that do that, not necessarily generating electricity, but a micro reactor, 15 megawatts. That's relatively small. I, I got to believe that the uh, reactor itself is also very very small relative to big reactors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's something like 18 meters in total height so really not uh, not not a huge thing obviously we're exploring the possibility of using the electricity <laughs> but <laughs> but uh you know the main purpose from i think from global first powers perspective is to demonstrate that their technology operates as as promised so for the application process do you guys have a bunch of Applicants or is uh, UltraSafe the, the first or the furthest along? Are, are other people applying to use your facilities? Uh, yes. So there are actually currently four participants in the invitation process, uh, each at different stages. Currently in phase one, or actually having completed phase one, are U Battery, uh, StarCore, and Terrestrial Energy. And then Global First, as I mentioned before, is uh, in stage three. So uh, four different vendors. Obviously, we've had a little bit more interest from uh, the, the very small and micro reactor vendors uh, because in the middle of nowhere, Canada, which is, I think, our official location, is not necessarily <laughs> the best place for a, for a grid scale 300 megawatt uh, kind, of, kind of reactor. It's been an exciting kind of collection of technologies that are, that are looking into siting with us. Yeah, that's super exciting. So, Dennis, you also volunteer with... Uh, the North American Young Generation in Nuclear. Did I, did I get that right? You N did. N well done. NAYGN, right? This is the this is the folks that are under 35 and uh, are in the nuclear profession and, and want to hang out. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, characterize it for us a little bit. Yeah, talk, talk about your experience and uh, what they do. And Sure thing. So, um, yeah, uh, NAYGN, North American Young Generation Nuclear. I, too, am not an enormous fan of the name because it's a bit of a mouthful. But um, we are a uh, nuclear advocacy organization that has four pillars, which are professional development, uh, public information, networking and membership, and community outreach. So all of the activities that we perform kind of fall within those four broad, broad categories. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned in my introduction, I'm the local chapter lead for the Chalk River chapter of NAYGN. Um, but anyways, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting organization in that because of the sort of breadth of things that we do, uh, you can really take it wherever you want to after you join the organization. Um, I, for one, joined our local chapter um, to do the advocacy and education side of things primarily. That was kind of my initial role. So I did, you know, speaking at local schools to, to grade fives and sixes and telling them the basics about nuclear energy and, and dispelling some of the myths. And that's a blast. And then I also got to participate in, in things like um, like a uh, nuclear hill day so you go to parliament and you speak with parliamentarians about uh, about nuclear energy and about how awesome it is and how it's going to solve all of canada's problems um and uh and you know that that sort of thing was always fascinating to me and i with my political science background i obviously felt like i should at least get a little bit of real world experience with uh, advocacy and, and politics um but uh yeah certainly uh a big part of it too is the professional development side of things. So uh, our chapter does a lot of organizing events. Um, naturally, because we're situated in a national lab, we have all sorts of awesome speakers that we can kind of uh, pull on and uh, and put on stage and ask a bunch of fun questions too and and get some good stuff. So, for example, recently we did a radiation myth busting webinar uh, from our chapter. So we got two of our people who are experts in. Uh, the effects of radiation on living things to kind of talk about, you know, what would really happen in X, Y, and Z scenario and, um, you know, how does radiation actually work and how does it actually affect the body? So that was, uh, that was a really good event that we did. Um, but yeah, at any rate, it's uh, yeah, it's a fantastic organization and uh, it's got a really broad membership. So it's an excellent way to um, meet people from all around the industry, uh, obviously sequestered up here in, in the national lab away from, uh, where all the power producing action is in Southern Ontario, it was a really good opportunity to meet some of my uh, compatriots uh, that actually work for utilities and, and get more of that, uh, more of that utility perspective on, on some of the nuclear issues. So really fascinating. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Sounds like an excellent organization that spans not just Canada, but also uh, other parts of North America. Yeah. And I'll put a, a link in the show notes to the NAYGN.org website. It has a nice map with all the chapters across, uh, across the countries. So if any of our listeners want to reach out and get involved in some more nuclear specific things. Perfect. Thank you. Dennis, what, what excites you most about kind of the future of the industry, right? You're, you're heavy in the nuclear space, but what, what do you see coming down the pipeline that is, is just really exciting? So I'm going to, I'm going to fall back on my, uh, on my international development studies roots a little bit here because at a high level, there's something really incredible happening right now, right? Which is the industrialization of uh, an in entire enormous percentage of the global population. The economic development of India and China, for example, 
um, and then you know further development in in Brazil and and all sorts of you know quasi I don't want to call them industrial revolutions because that's inaccurate but further industrialization of the entire world um, naturally which like is so cool. It's yeah, so good. <laughs> exactly. Like, right. It's making the lives of so many humans better, which I don't know. It doesn't get talked about enough. It's just I'm super excited about it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm, you know, say what you will about the, the human rights record of the Chinese government. But the economic development of China is the single most important event in changing global poverty indicators, period. It's, you know, it, it's uh, it's really staggering, you know, uh, how those indicators get affected when you bring uh, 1.2 billion people into the industrial sector. It's it's really quite something. Uh, but of course, <laughs> with that comes an enormous increase in the demand for power. And, you know, these countries have a right to develop economically. And, and you know, it would be incredibly hypocritical of Western nations to suddenly say, hey, you can't do that because it's bad for the environment. Um, but the easiest way to develop right now uh, is through fossil fuels. Uh, and that is the most rapid way to improve uh, the quality of life for people. But I think, you know, as a, as a world, uh, we're coming to the point where we all collectively recognize the danger that global warming presents to us. And the uh, impetus for a solution is only going to grow as the problems become more dramatic. And that's incredibly exciting for anybody involved in the energy industry, because it means there's going to be so much emphasis on innovative solutions, on new ways to do things, on creative ways to to help people um, achieve the standard of living that we enjoy, while at the same time uh, keeping the planet in good shape. And, um, you know, personally, that's a big part of my motivation for working in the nuclear industry is I've always seen nuclear as a, a very important part of that solution. But I'm not a fanatic, I promise, because I really do. I really do believe in the all of the above um, rhetoric that the United States has been using for quite a while now. I, I, I think it's true. Right. You know, there is uh, there's a space for every technology and every technology has its strengths and weaknesses uh, and there's diff different applications for all of them. So that's extremely exciting um, and there's just so much work to be done and, and so much good that can be done, you know, this year, next year every year for the next hundred years quite easily right it's it's awesome well, that's the good what's uh what's what's the bad what's one thing about the energy industry that scares you or keeps you up at night the yeah the thing that scares me the most uh is probably the same thing i already mentioned which is that you've got these billions of people um increasing their energy demands uh and if they follow the same model that the Western world did a uh, hundred years ago, uh, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, again, we have no right to tell them they can't do it, but we should certainly put a lot of emphasis on trying to find other ways uh, for them to do it um, and, and, and helping, helping them develop in ways that are sustainable and achievable. If they could do it correctly, I mean, should they be building can-do reactors and small, small modular reactors across the world? So I'm going to get in a lot of trouble from my small modular reactor friends when I say this, but you know, <laughs> one of one of my, one of the things I like to say is that we have had the technology to combat global warming since the 50s. Honestly, like if you wanted to solve, if you wanted to decarbonize the baseload electricity requirements of the entire globe, you could do it with the reactors we had in the 60s and 70s, and it would be fine. You know, you might be paying a few cents more per kilowatt hour in some places. And you might not. 
it, it all depends on the regulatory environment and on um, you know just how efficiently people can get these reactors to run. But the industry has an incredible track record, and the technology you know these the small modular reactors are all really really cool, and they bring a lot of very real uh, potential benefits to the table, a lot of very real potential improvements. But um, you don't actually need those innovations to achieve the sort of reductions that we're looking for. You just need the political will and the financial will to bite the bullet and essentially pay the carbon tax. Clean energy currently still costs a little bit more, but I think nuclear is is a really, really reasonable and responsible way to achieve that. I say it all the time. My friend, my friends often get fatigued of hearing me talk about it. So I'm, I'm on board with you. We've got the technology. We've had it for a long time. So what, what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry? Well, I mean, uh, that's a, that's a fun question because now I get to sound really arrogant giving advice to, to people the, the same age as me. <laughs> that, that are your peers? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Give me some advice, Dennis. I need advice. <laughs> Tell me how to live my life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I mean, I, I can just say what worked for me and you can take it as advice if you'd like. But uh, f- for my part, anyways, um, the the best thing has just been, you know, not assuming where your opportunities are going to come from and not just sticking to what's in your job description. If you strictly just go, oh, well, that's not my job. And, you know, that's whatever. You're probably not going to grow or develop as much as a person as you could. Um, and that's obviously going to impact your career growth. But also, you know, if you don't involve yourself in extracurriculars, uh, you're not going to expand your network very quickly. You'll have, you know, people within your own professional realm that you that you know, but you're not going to make those connections that could potentially result in that huge next opportunity for you. Um, you know, I've met a lot of really interesting people that I never would through NAYGN. I've met a lot of interesting people that I never would just through taking people up on things like this or or helping out with the uh, with this uh, I4N competition. And, you know, what also comes with that is a lot of personal growth and development in terms of your skill set. A lot of people in in the energy industry in particular, and that's, you know, especially true at a national lab where this feels like you need a PhD to even get in the door. Um, but those skills uh, are, you know, obviously essential uh, for certain careers. But they're also kind of the baseline. And if you really want to stand out, developing your other skills, developing your soft skills um, through things like organizing webinars or giving talks and things like that, or just volunteering um, and meeting people from different walks of life. These are all ways that you can really help yourself stand out because, you know, all of the superstars in our organization are not just people who are technically excellent. There are people who can communicate effectively people who are personable ultimately you know people like working with people that they like (laughs) so the more you can work on your soft skills um the more likely you are to find success uh and move up quickly i think i agree i think that's phenomenal advice right you got to make people fall in love with you to to get a job (laughs) exactly so nuclear lab or national lab focusing on nuclear, super awesome. Um, you guys have this innovative uh, SMR project. You're doing great research into fixing cancers or t- new treatment for cancers. You know, leave, leave us on a positive note. Where 
Where do you see the nuclear industry going in addition to all those places? How does this unfold in the next one, five, 10, 15 years? So uh, I'll, I'll make it up to my SMR friends now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do genuinely believe there's a big future for small modular reactors, uh, especially in Canada. Um, well, for, for yeah. one thing, yeah, there's there's been you know some serious organizations really getting behind these things now, right? Um, for example, Ontario Power Generation has the Darlington New Nuclear Project. So this is for an on-grid technology. You know, at CNL we're develop, we're we're helping to um, deploy an off-grid or at least a smaller reactor. The Darlington New Nuclear Project just announced that they would be uh, pursuing GE Hitachi's BWRX 300 technology. Um, and building that at their site. So this is a 300 megawatt um, reactor. So at the very cusp of the definition of small, um, and uh, it's you know it's a BWR design. So that'll be the first non-CANDU uh, reactor built in Canada for on-grid power production. And that's just super cool. Um, and we'll have all sorts of uh, things we can learn from uh, U.S. operators and 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 technical experts in the United States about running BWRs, but of course this is a completely new design to some extent, or it's a, it's, it bears a lot of resemblance to, to existing BWRs, but there's some new things, and obviously you know it's a different geometry and everything, so there's all sorts of new things to to learn there. Um, but I think there's a real future for all sorts of SMR technologies, um, and especially in Canada, remote um, power production is a serious issue in Canada. The um, the average cost of electricity in Iqaluit, for example, is more than double the electricity cost at peak in Ontario. And Iqaluit is the capital of Nunavut, which is one of our northern territories. So that's an example of, you know, a place that isn't even technically that remote, <laughs> um, but is still quite remote. And, and the the uh, the challenges they face for basic necessities like electricity um, and when you extrapolate that to, to places that have to ship things then from a Callowit on to somewhere else, um, you know, the, the price just keeps going up and up and up and the general cost of living keeps going up and up and up and, and small modular reactors could make a huge impact on that because, um, you know, hypothetically you could have a reactor that you fly into somewhere or drive into somewhere, you plunk it down, you assemble it, you turn it on, it runs for 20 years straight, providing clean energy to the community. And then you pick it up and take it away once it's done and replace it with a new one. So you've got one shipment, you know, one plane flight or one one set of trucks going up there. You've got um, 20 years of clean energy, a stable production uh, at a you know very very predictable rate. You can just put your power purchase agreement in place and that's it. Uh, and then you know you opt into another 20 years or you don't. And you know that's a pretty compelling model, I think. Obviously, the communities have to decide that it's a comp compelling model. It's not up to me to decide that, but it's uh, it's certainly something that I see has a lot of potential, especially when you consider um, the possibilities that it opens up in terms of industrializing northern communities and in terms of supporting just further industrial operations in the north. There are already many remote mining operations um, and even some sort of oil and gas operations that are technically off-grid. Uh, that would benefit enormously from having a cheap, reliable source of, of energy. And the, um, the the further benefit to that is you've got um, kind of excess capacity that you could hypothetically build into or or not. But anyways, it's um, 
I see that as being, you know, a, a really big part of the future of, of energy in Canada is um, bringing those, bringing the living standard up for for those off grid communities that are that are currently suffering. Dude, I I couldn't agree more. I think it's it's a huge opportunity in the space moving forward, and I think the number of applications to deploy that technology uh, are are infinite, right? And the the, a starting point easily could be northern communities or remote communities. But, I mean, you mentioned oil and gas, right? I, I think about, I, I mean, I am a frack engineer, right, by training. And uh, during frack jobs, we burn 160,000 gallons of diesel per well. Right? And it's like <laughs> 20, 20 megawatts of power that we have on location that's just being burnt in internal combustion engines. That Yeah, plop down a small modular micro reactor on location that a frack company buys and totes around from site to site to power all their pumps like exactly that's incredible and i mean yeah like uh for a canadian example the the um, oil sands use uh sag d right um steam assisted gravity drainage i think i actually got that right um <laughs> uh to to extract uh, oil from from the sands and that's a high temperature process so you could even just use these things for process heat in addition to electricity right especially sort of the high temperature gas models where you're you're operating in almost exactly the right temperature you can just use that high quality heat and um yeah all sorts of potential synergies really cool stuff awesome well, Dennis, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Sean, thanks for stepping in as co-host today. It's been super fun chatting with you, and I hope to, hope to chat more in the future. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for, for hosting me, guys, and uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> happy, to, happy to come back if you'll have me, but uh, I think I said everything, literally everything I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Dennis. Uh, thanks very much. that again i agree with that. i think graduated in 2014 <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't, yeah, I don't think we should cut that i think we should yeah uh, yeah why not i don't care <laughs>